Hey, it's Stacia D. And it's Jay Stan. And welcome back to In Retrospect Podcast, where we look beyond the surface to find understanding. Bring you laughs, knowledge, and culture. So sit back, relax, and join the convo. Most definitely, most definitely. So today we do have a special guest in the building, as you all can see, that is here. Our guest is Dr. Umar Johnson. He is a doctor of clinical and psychological psychology and certified school psychologist who is considered an expert on the education and mental health of African and African-American children. Dr. Umar is currently working on building his new school, the Frederick Douglass and Marcus Garvey RBG International Leadership Academy for Boys, America's first residential academy for black boys founded upon the principles of Pan-Africanism and international economics. This school is set to open its doors September 3rd, 2024. The time is coming. It is coming soon. As you all know, uh, Dr. Umar is known as the Prince of Pan-Africanism, King Consciousness himself. He is here and we will let him say a few words before we do get started. Uh, Peace and Pan-Africanism. Glad to be with you and uh, looking forward to the conversation. Don't forget to support the Frederick Douglass Marcus Garvey Academy. Get on your cash app, dollar sign FDMG school. Get on your PayPal paypal.me slash fdmg academy and for those who are interested in employment feel free to send your resume along with cover letter and photo to fdmg resumes with an s at gmail.com um and we'll put that information in the description box because i know that could be a lot for people to copy down uh and just like you know we just hit on the the school of course opening up in the new year Dr. Umar, uh, what did you learn throughout the process of building your school? What did I learn? That everything I thought about Black folks were true. Um, and what I mean by that is uh, we had a lot of trouble finding dependable Black contractors with integrity, responsibility. Uh, we were taken advantage of, robbed, stolen from, let down, disappointed, betrayed, everything you could think of. We went through it for the past three and a half years. So it was just a confirmation of why we need the Frederick Douglass Marcus Garvey Academy, the attitude of black masculinity towards our responsibility of solving our own problems and raising up our community. It's a very big barrier to black progress uh, in this country. Uh, what else did I learn? I learned that if black people trust you, if they believe in you, they will support you. Uh, the Frederick Douglass and Marcus Garvey Academy is the first school in American history built by the African diaspora. No school ever in this country's history has been built, financed, renovated off of donations from African people from every single continent in the world. And so we've achieved history in doing this. And so although I had to learn the bittersweet lesson that a lot of Black men uh, are not worth their weight and salt, I also learned that Black people are willing to support and uh, sustain a serious movement if they really believe in the person leading that initiative. How did you get people to believe in that initiative if you feel like a lot of Black men don't really step up to the plate? Well, it was the contractors who didn't do right by us. Uh, they don't represent the sum total okay. of Black men. But in terms of Black contractors, I think it's critical that they were the disappointing party because if we're gonna build Black Wall Street, if we're gonna build our own institutions, we need responsible Black contractors to do that. I mean, these are the builders. These are the trained, mm -hmm. licensed builders. So if we're gonna have our own schools, our own banks, 
our own hospitals, supermarkets, distribution networks, and manufacturing centers. We need brothers who are trained and licensed and credentialed in those areas to carry that work forward. And the fact that we were paying them market rate uh, fees for their service and they still just could not deliver their work because they had to report to a black person was absolutely insane. If I had been white, I'm quite sure they would have done the work and done the work the way it should have been done. Uh, so it was just very disappointing to see that, especially given the mission. And the mission is to build a school to save our children. You know, we look at the suspension rates of black boys, the expulsion rates of black boys. We look at the learning disability, the ADHD, the conduct disorder, the emotional disturbance rates of black boys. We look at the rate at which black boys are arrested in school, uh, receiving a all too early introduction into the juvenile detention process. You know, you look at the outcomes for our sons, it's not good. Only one out of every four black boys is graduating in this country nationally. It is an epidemic. And so I thought that when I reached out to these brothers, they would say, hey, we got to do this. Not only is he paying us, the the the, the purpose, the mission yeah. is something that we need. They couldn't care less. You know, they couldn't care less. It was all about the money. And then even when they got the money, they couldn't do the work right. But again, that's not every black contractor. We still have some other things that need to get done at the school. I'm still looking for black contractors. I'm looking for black roofers right now. I'm looking for black window repairers right now. So they have not, you know, influenced me to give up on black contractors because that would be a contradiction of who I am and what I stand for. You know, we're going to keep on finding, we're going to keep on searching until we find the right ones. You know, it costs you money to do that. Obviously, we lost a lot of money dealing with these Negroes. But, you know, we're going to keep on searching until we find the right mix because we still have the Frederick Douglass High School that still has to be renovated. You know, but I'd rather focus on the positive instead of the negative. Yeah. We're almost at the finish line. And the fact well, that we've had so many African people from around the world donate to this cause, you know, this was not an African-American thing. I want to be very clear about that. Uh, African-Americans definitely were one of the two largest donation groups. And we still have to do the math to see who actually gave the most. But our brothers and sisters on the continent of Africa gave a lot. Our brothers and sisters on the continent of Europe gave a lot. Our brothers and sisters in the Caribbean gave a lot. Uh, so it would be interesting to see who actually gave the most. But this was not an African-American thing. This was a total Pan-African effort. There's a lot of truth to what you were talking about as far as the overall outcomes for Black boys. I'm a, a school social worker in, yeah, in Atlanta, from Charleston, but I work in Atlanta <laughs> as a school social worker. So very true. Um, I'm curious to know, how is your school going to combat those issues that Black boys have to go through in the you know regular school system? Well, the main problem that Black boys have is the white teachers in the classroom. That's the main issue. You know, curriculum can be better, but that's not why they're failing. Mm -hmm. uh, more money could be spent on their education, but that's not why they're failing. Okay, they're failing because the person responsible for their education is not a natural stakeholder in their success. Uh, most teachers in America are white and they are white women and they are racist and they are hostile white women. I mean, it was a report that came out from the United States Department of Education just a few years ago that showed black boys in kindergarten kindergarten were being suspended and expelled from school at rates higher than white boys in high school 
What can a black boy at six years old do that would warrant a worse punishment than a white boy of a similar offense in high school? So clearly these white women are hostile. We as a people should have never sent our children into these desegregated schools without black teachers to accompany them. When we go back to 54, and we look at the Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court decision, one of the mistakes that we made as a community was when they desegregated the schools, they did not desegregate the teaching ranks. You understand the black teachers from the black community did not accompany our children into those white schools. Mm -hmm. So our children walk into enemy territory without anyone who loved them to be there to protect them. And that was a big mistake we made. You never send your children into enemy territory without some of their own people to look out for them. And as a result of that, we saw our greatest drop in black teachers within the profession from 1954 to 1974, because white schools would not hire them. They didn't even want the children. So they definitely didn't want the teachers. The issue is the white woman, but guess what? She's the most privileged person in this society. And whenever we have conversations about the failure of black boys, mysteriously, she's always left off of the list of causes. She's never on the list. It's always income. It's gangster rap. It's incarcerated fathers. It's poverty. It's unwed mothers. It's uh, poor educational finance. It's a uh, weak curriculum. It's old textbooks. It's never the white racist woman in front of the classroom. And so, you know, I don't care what you change in the schools. I don't care what you change until you get rid of her and give black boys, strong black male teachers, the academic achievement rates will never go up. Most certainly. And, and I will say while we, while you were saying all that, that mm -hmm. it made me think of a time when I was in school and it's strange. It's crazy. I had a white guidance counselor and this fella really came into the room. It was me and a couple other, you know, black, black fellas that were in the classroom. And he told us, a statistic of saying at the time it was he said one in every four black boys in the class or whatever it was would be going or be incarcerated and i never thought at the time i didn't think nothing of it but now as i get older i'm thinking why why would you feel the need to come in there and tell us a, stati a statistic such as one out of the four every four of us is going to end up being incarcerated instead of you trying to like you said moments ago try to preach positivity and try to tell us different paths of different things to do instead of you telling us what's what's the worst case scenario where we gonna end up at because you know a lot of people don't realize that at a young age a lot of stuff gets internalized like that moment it's crazy that i even remember it but the fact that i remember it just lets me know that it bothered me subconsciously it was might not have been on the surface but it stuck with me because i still remember it to this day it didn't make any sense to me and i remember when he said it and i just looked at him and it just didn't process but the older i get it just makes more sense that he was in my he was out of line he should never said it. he should have just been more positive about everything uh and most definitely i will say that is one of the moments in my life that definitely drive me to do better because i'm like i'm not i'm not just a statistic you're not gonna say i'm gonna possibly end up here i said i, I don't want to hear that i hear these numbers you're not gonna put me in a box <laughs> so i definitely understand where both of y'all are coming from I guess my mind is going to, well, what options do parents have right now? Because there aren't a lot of 
your schools that exist right now. And just like you said, the number of black educators have decreased over time. Um, and we can't, I mean, we have to send kids to school. So then what would be the other option other than, I guess, building them up in the home, but that can only do but so much. See, the issue that we have as a people, whether we're dealing with education, whether we're dealing with economics, whether we're dealing with politics, we are allergic to building our own institutions. Black people want no responsibility whatsoever for the reconstruction of Black America. Uh, we will talk about reparations all day long because it requires somebody else to do something for us. The solution is we have to build our own schools. Black people better understand something and understand it real quick. America is through doing anything for Black folks. Although they never did, they at least gave the impression of doing something. Now they are blatantly and unapologetically making it clear, as you've seen with President Biden's behavior, as you've seen with President Trump's behavior, as you've seen with President Obama's behavior. America is through acting like it cares about Black people. And if we're going to save our children, we're going to have to build our own schools. I mean, we spend $30 billion on beauty products, more than any other group in the yeah. country. You know, we spend $2 billion on Air Jordans, $4 billion on liquor. McDonald's gets a billion dollars from Black people every year. Uh, children's cologne is about $20 million. We spend $800 million on chicken, turkey, beef, and pork every year as a people. We are literally making Koreans rich every day, building their institutions. We're making Chinese rich every day, building their institutions. We're making Latinos and Arabs and East Indians, Anglo-Saxons and Jews rich, building their institutions. Why is it so easy for us to donate to other people's empowerment, but we don't want to donate to our own? See, there's Band-Aids and then there's solutions. Mm -hmm. Anything that you do to try to fix education while it is controlled by white people is a Band-Aid. It's a Band-Aid. The solution is your own schools. White people don't care about black people and they damn sure don't care about black boys. Everybody knows this, especially us. But rather than come together and use our money to give our children the opportunity they deserve, we'd rather keep on buying Christmas gifts, keep on buying Easter gifts, keep on having 4th of July parties, keep on having New, New Year's Eve parties, keep on wasting our money on vacations and useless merchandise and things of that nature. One of the reasons people do not feel sympathy for American Africans, one of the reasons globally people do not feel sympathy for us is we have the money to fix our own problem. Now, there's still some things we have to fight. We still have to fight criminal justice because we're not allowed to have our own criminal justice system. So there are certain systems we have to fight. But when you look at education, this country gives everybody the right to build their own schools. You can yep. build your own schools and we will not do it because although white people don't care about black children, black people don't care too much more about black children either. I'm not speaking about our own children in our homes. I'm speaking collectively of the children in our communities. We don't care about them. And that's why these young black men are in our city centers, tearing them down. They're robbing our elders. They're disrespecting our mothers. They're killing each other. Why? Most of these crimes go out of economic desperation, an economic desperation that would not be there 
if black people had their own schools training our young men in how to be plumbers and electricians and roofers and welders and auto mechanics and carpenters, the skills that pay the bills. If you wanna stop violence in the black community, it starts by preparing these young men in the skills that pay the bills. Black America, black America wants none of the responsibility for solving its own problems. Uh, Dr. Umar, I was just curious to know, I know you did mention earlier when you did discuss uh, gangster rap being so-called the blame for some of the issues that are you know, arising in schools or being used as, you know, a scapegoat per se. Uh, and I was curious to know, you know, the N-word does come up in a lot of music. Uh, and I know, why do we call each other the N-word, but get vehemently uh, upset with a, a white person when they use the N-word? Why is We're that? the only people in human history, the only people who have fought for the right to use a racially pejorative term in order to refer to one another. No other group has ever fought for the right to use a word that has systemically been used to dehumanize them and fight for that, for the right to protect it, preserve it, and use it with one another. It speaks to internalized racism and the psychological residuals of slavery. Psychologically speaking, most American Africans are European. They're fully European consciously. They may be physically African, they may be culturally African, but most of us are psychologically European. And because we have internalized the racism that has been practiced against us for half a millennium now, most of us don't even recognize, we're totally unconscious of the self-hate that we have. Even when you look at the jokes that a lot of our popular comedians have made about slavery, you have never seen a Jewish community comedian, excuse me, make light of the Jewish Holocaust. You've never seen that at all. You have never seen the comedians of other communities make light of some of the worst experiences that the people have had to endure. But black comedians regularly trivialize and undercut and undermine slavery by making a mockery of it. We are literally Europeans trapped inside of black bodies. And that's why I always say, either the European is gonna kill us or we're gonna to have to kill the European inside of us in order to get free. But both of them cannot survive. The Negro will die so the African will live or the African will die so the Negro can stay alive. Um, I mean, I agree. I, when I was younger, I didn't want to say the N word and I didn't want to be called the N word just because I felt like you can't erase history no matter how you try to flip it or make it sound better and put a spin on it. Um, but as an adult, it doesn't bother me as much if another black person is saying that within their conversation, but it would make sense to me why someone would be upset if a non-black person says it because everybody understands that other racial slurs are all, like, we can't save them, it's an issue. But for some reason, there's always a debate about the N-word and who can say it and who cannot. And that piece of it, I don't understand. Well, nobody should be saying it. That's the point. And the reason why it cannot be made, uh, quote unquote, illegal, as Joe Biden did with the anti-Asian hate executive order that he signed, he made it a federal crime to use a racial slur against an Asian. Okay, but they never made it a federal crime to use a racial slur against an African-American. But a lot of that is our fault. 
you can't expect your oppressor to care more about you than you do, you know? And so as a result of that, as long as black people want to keep that word alive and as long as black people want to use it as some sort of badge of pride, then white people will also be able to make use of it as well. In fact, we've even seen uh, black celebrities defend the use of the N-word by white celebrities. I remember several years ago when Eminem was caught uh, in some old records that he had made where he was disrespecting black women significantly and using the N-word, Jay-Z came to his defense. I remember when uh, one of the basketball players with the Villanova Wildcats, the last year they won the national NCAA Division I basketball championship, they had a white player by the name of Dante DiVincenzo, and he was caught using the N-word in a rap that he had, and Stephen A. Smith came to his defense. You will never, ever see, ever see a European Jew come to the defense of anybody who uses a racial slur against them. You won't see it in the Hispanic community, the Asian community, or anywhere else. Only Black people accept that type of treatment, and only Black people engage in that type of treatment because, again, we have internalized the racism that has been used against us. Right. And I know you did mention uh, a few names there. Uh, and I was curious to know, you know, what qualifies a person to be a coon, per se? The, right. the coon and the Negro, those are two different people, related and similar, but different in terms of their threat to the Black community. A Negro is innocent in his or her ignorance. They think white people are better. They think Jesus is white. They think black people can solve their problems. They think white people have all the answers. They think that multiculturalism is the way to go because they don't know any better. So the Negro suffers from ignorance. He or she has not received a proper political education, but the coon knows better. The coon knows what the solutions are. The coon knows that white people are a threat to black survival, but they will act as if they don't know in order to fulfill their own personal agenda. So the coon is dangerous because he volunteers to betray his people, whereas the Negro does so by accident. Supreme Court Justice Colin Powell. Okay. He recently said that he does not know what the word diversity means. He went on record to say that. Here's a man who benefited from every diversity program the U.S. government offered to black people. And the minute he gets into a position of influence, only the second black to ever sit on that bench. And he says he doesn't know what diversity means. That is a coon. He knows that what he's doing is working against the best interests of black people. And he does it anyway in order to curry favor with the white power structure and his white wife who happens to be George Bush's first cousin. Oh, wow. Justin, I was going to say, um, and I guess it's pretty much what Dr. Umar is saying. To me, a coon is just somebody who is anti-Black. Like, they're Black, but they're anti-Black. And in my opinion, we've talked about him before on the show, I feel like more recently Kanye West has displayed some anti-Black uh, activities by certain things that he has said over the past few years. But that's just my opinion. Right. And, and, you know, you know, you, you, you are entitled to your opinion, of course. And like I, like, like I said, but I said, like I said, he did come out. He apologized for the, you know, the things mm -hmm. that he did say. I understand it doesn't sit well with others, but he, he did, you know, come out and did apologize for things that he did say. 
Uh, and that's and that's what I will say on that. Uh, of I course, appreciate you know, Kanye for the courage <laughs> to speak what? truth to the Jewish power structure. I appreciated the fact that he's the first black man in quite some time to publicly expose the European Jewish control of black entertainers and remain unapologetic in his position even when he lost billions of dollars. I don't know of another black celebrity who risk losing that type of money in the face of speaking the truth about Jewish racism. Michael Jackson did it, but Michael Jackson was no longer in his prime. The closest would be Muhammad Ali. And although I don't think he was a billionaire at that time, he was definitely one of the most successful and one of the wealthiest uh, black athletes at the time. So I would say Muhammad Ali, and then I would probably have to put Kanye writing back, but I would not put him in the same category because Muhammad Ali was doing what he was doing on behalf of the black community. He didn't feel that black men should be forced to fight in a war in defense of people who don't defend them. Whereas Kanye West's expose on the Jewish hypocrisy situation was more about simply telling the truth about Jews, but he has never graduated to telling the truth about white supremacy. And as I study Kanye, he seems to be very careful in making sure he don't alienate other groups of white people. So he's really not a prophet of black pride or consciousness per se. He's simply about exposing the truth of the European Jewish cartel while at the same time being careful to curry favor with other groups of white people. And that's why I cannot consider him a black activist a black leader, a black organizer, you know, or even a black spokesman, because he has yet to definitively and uh, unashamedly say that I'm representing my people. He says he represents his fans. He represents his followers. He has never said he represents black people as a prioritized group. And that's why I have to stop short of endorsing him as someone that our children could uh, look up to. He has a little bit more to show. And in dealing with billionaires in general, and of course I had this conversation with Charlemagne and DJ Envy a few weeks ago in New York City, I haven't seen a black billionaire do anything of significance for black people in my entire lifetime. I have never seen Oprah do anything of significance. I haven't seen Jay-Z do anything of significance. I haven't seen LeBron James or Sean Puffy Combs or Bob Johnson, uh, do anything of significance. There's no black billionaire in America yet who has built a single relevant institution in the black community. They give handouts, they give their opinions on social issues, but they don't do anything. And unfortunately, we as black people are also at fault. It's not just the celebrities and the entertainers, but as a community, we have also gotten very careful, excuse me, comfortable not doing anything. There's no more activism in the black community. There is a lot of posturing, there's a lot of social media gesturing, but there's very little all black activism in the black community. We have traded in organization for information. And that was a mistake because information is not gonna save you. Putting the information into action is what's gonna save you. The big difference between our generation, the black consciousness era, and the 1960s and 70s. 
is the fact that they didn't have a lot of the information we have. We have access to everything yeah. about the black experience, but we do nothing. They didn't have that access. H. Rat Brown and Stokely Carmichael, and Malcolm and Medgar and Martin and Huey and uh, George and Jonathan Jackson and Fred Hampton, uh, uh, Fannie Lou Hamer. They didn't have access to the information we have, but they were far more active than we have ever been. I wonder if that's because the Black people who are billionaires and also celebrities are afraid of cancel culture or being in some kind of way. And so they don't feel like they can't <laughs> truly operate in like pro-Blackness. But that, I mean, that may be a possibility. Not that it's a good excuse, but I feel like that could definitely play a role in it. Well, you know, Black people, when they're talking to other Black people, will say, I'm pro-Black. I was just curious to know, you know, why is it? Absolutely. That? Let me first say to the sister's point, we don't need our millionaires and billionaires to be considered pro-black. Mm -hmm. We need them to engage in pro progressive behavior that benefits black people. Jewish celebrities don't run around saying they're pro-Jewish. They just take care of their community. You know, they don't need to advertise it. They don't have to put on a red, black, and green wristband. You know what needs to be done because you come from the ghetto yourself. All of you are first or second generation millionaires. Just do what needs to be done. That's all we need from them. And they're not even doing that because they're selfish. Okay, they are extremely selfish. There was a Jewish celebrity who was interviewed not too long ago, and he uh, compared Jewish celebrities and black celebrities. He said, we are completely different. He said, the Jewish celebrities, we use our money to benefit the Jewish community. All of us do. We are expected to do it, and we do it. And he said, black celebrities never do that. He said, you can hardly ever find the black celebrity doing something meaningful, not giving out turkeys, not donating basketball courts, not giving out sneakers, but building institutions. You can hardly find a black celebrity who does that. And I don't want to single out the celebrity and demonize them because they're just a reflection of the rest of us. Most of us are not interested in sacrificing for the black community. Like I always say, I would never expect a billionaire to sacrifice billions when the people on the bottom won't even sacrifice thousands. How dare we expect them to donate billions when we won't even donate hundreds. The people on the bottom has to initiate the change and then the billionaires will come in later. Take my school. I haven't had a single donation. And I know plenty of celebrities. They come to my lectures, they meet me backstage, we talk on the phone. I know plenty of celebrities, and I'm not talking about at the bottom. I'm talking about at the tippity top. I know them. They know me. They call me. I call them. But none of them have yet to donate. Once the school is up and running, I suspect that some of them may try to sneak a little money over to the FDMG Academy. But because the risk is so great for them, they first have to see that you are serious before they commit themselves. You see. Now, to your question about pro-black, pro-black to me. That word in and of itself speaks directly to the fact that most of us are anti-Black. Most of us operate like Europeans. Most of us suffer the psychological residuals of slavery. Most of us are internalized Europeans who suffer from internalized racism. No other group has to designate members of its own in-group as pro-group. 
Who does that? If you belong to a fraternity and you're a Kappa or a Q, you don't have to say I'm pro-Kappa. I'm a Kappa. That automatically means I'm pro-Kappa. If you go to the church and you're a Methodist, you don't have to say I'm a pro-Methodist. If you are a Methodist, it is expected and assumed that you're going to look out for the church. If you are a Latino, you don't have to say I'm pro-Latino. As a member, by virtue of your membership, it is expected that you will be an advocate for the group only with Black people. This speaks to the unique influence that slavery has had on our psychological development and our political thought. Only Black people have to be designated as being an advocate for his or her own people. And the reason they have to designate you with a pro in front of your Blackness speaks to the fact that most Black people are anti-Black. If I have to designate you as pro, if mm -hmm. I have to single you out as pro-Black, that automatically means that the norm is for us to not be pro-Black, which is to be pro-white. I don't think the average Black person recognizes that, though. And I feel like it takes self-awareness to even recognize it. But at that point, only some of us are privileged enough to get to that. I, like me personally, what you're speaking of, of this internalized racism and feeling like having an inferiority complex, I definitely had that growing up until I got to college and I took it upon myself to take African-American study courses. That's when my mind starts to turn and I start to learn the things that they don't teach you. It was like, oh, okay. And so then the way that I view myself and other black people completely changed. But it took for me going to college and re and having access to certain materials that other people may not or they may choose not to, you know, read or do research on. Oh, that's a real thing too. Like I like when like you said, when I got to college, same thing. Everything that was taught to me all the way up to 12th grade. And I went back and I, and I had to unlearn stuff and then relearn. And then all of a sudden, as I'm relearning, I'm starting to realize like all these names that they had in these history books and they had them portrayed as white men. These folks are really black. And it's like, what in the world is going on here? So everything that I'm being taught all this time isn't, 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 isn't true. And it just really makes you think because these textbooks that they give you and they have you, oh, you need to get this right for the test. And they have these test set up and you gotta get the person's name who discovered america who did this who did that and you're sitting to yourself at our big age now we're almost full-blown adults past 18 and we're having to unlearn and relearn certain things that were taught to us as we were going through the school system which is just interesting to me because that's that's crazy and it's wild because now we're trying to empower ourselves well remember it's natural for any child to be happy, to be healthy, to love themselves, to be a progressive member of their community. That's normal. What we see is abnormality. And the reason we see abnormality is because we give our children to their enemies for the first 17 years of their life. The reason we have this pro-Black epidemic is because the process of public education is the process of making a Negro out of a healthy black child. We will always be a stranger 
in our own bodies as long as we give our children to white people to educate them. We're the only people who systemically do that without having at least some sort of a secondary cultural education that go along with it. Chinese children also go and Jewish children also attend public and charter schools in this country. But when they go home, they are subject to a community education where they are taught who they are as a people. The black community has no such thing at all. And so this process of alienating the black child from themselves is not only the groundwork for such, is not only laid early in life, is laid by Sunday school in the black community and public school in the white power structure. The black church has a lot to do with it because the black church for many of us is often the first school. Even before you go to public school, you'd have been to church plenty of times. And in that church, number one, you're taught God is white by the imagery, even if you're not taught directly. That's number one. And number two, particularly for black boys, black church has a very negative effect on the development of black masculinity. Because of the passive nature in which black religion is offered, especially in the church, and because of the docile posture that is often engendered in black men by the church, being taught to love your enemies as opposed to defending your community has given rise to a situation where black men can stand by and watch a white man disrespect or hurt a black woman and not do anything about it. So we have to look at the role that our religious institutions have played in the anti-masculinity of black males. But as far as FDMG goes, it's not so much of what we do, and we're gonna do a lot that other schools have never done, but it's also as much about what we're not going to do. So our children will not be subject to menticide by way of European culture. They won't be subject to emotional abuse by way of white teachers. They won't be subject to a misidentification and over-identification and pre premature referrals to special education because the teacher don't want to teach and the school wants to exploit them financially. They won't have to worry about the ADHD and the conduct disorder diagnoses. They don't have to worry about the classroom teacher pushing drugs in the classroom, Ritalin, Adderall, Concerta, Cyclert, Metadate. Our black parents don't have to worry about being called up, harassed, uh, forced to take off work, come to school, pick your son up, get him out of here. They won't have to go through none of the academic terrorism that our children normally suffer from inside of the public and charter school. So that's number one. Our school culture and our school climate will be totally opposite of what our children are used to. Now, on the proactive side, we're teaching political and military science. So we're teaching our young men African martial arts. We're teaching our young men responsible use of firearms. There will be a Frederick Douglass Marcus Garvey Jr. gun club. We are teaching our young men modern political science. Why? are so many black men in jail? Why are so many black women unmarried? Why is Africa the richest continent minerally 
but the people are in some, our people are in some of the poorest conditions over there. Why is the white man a numerical minority in, on the planet? Has been as long as we can record time, but yet he dominates the resources of this planet. They're going to understand the world that they live in. History is great. Political science, though, understanding the last 50 years of human civilization is critical in order for Black children to make sense of the world in which they live. Because you can tell them they were great all day long, but if you don't explain to them how they went from the pyramids to the projects to the penitentiary, if you don't explain that, they may internalize racism just like the parents have done. In addition to that, financial and economic science, teaching our young men and women the laws of money, you know, teaching them real estate, the basics of it, tax, how to do your own taxes, the basics of it, international investments, the basics of it, world trade, the basics of it, business planning, and then giving them the seed money they need to actually go into business themselves is, is what we're going to be doing at FDMG. In addition to that, we have our agricultural curriculum where we're going to teach our young men and women how to grow their own food. One of the things that hurt us as a people when they began to shut down and deindustrialize the inner city black communities in the 1970s, not only did we lose out on the trades, we lost out on agriculture. At least 50% of blacks who came to the North during the great migration, their trade was agriculture. And we lost out on agriculture. Tens of thousands of jobs were lost out when black farmers became disenfranchised and when white farmers laid off of black people, we have to get back into agriculture, not only because our people need to eat to live, but also so our people can earn a living. So we are right now in the process of looking at farmland in Delaware. We're gonna have a small farm right there to teach our young men how to grow their own food, how to raise their own animals. That's a significant part of the FDMG program. You've spoken about education, you've spoken about um, religion, agriculture, all of these different things, and they all play a factor in bettering the black community. Mm -hmm. So why is it that when you go on social media, when you go on all these different podcasts, YouTube, everything, there is such a hyper focus on marriage being the key to fixing the black community's issues? Well, you can't get away from marriage because the family is the basic unit of a civilization, of a community, of a society. If the family is not healthy, almost no other institution can be because all institutions are comprised of individuals who grew up in functional families or dysfunctional families. One of the reasons Black people can't get along is because getting along productive, positive, healthy behavior wasn't something we saw in the houses where we lived. One of the reasons so many of our homes are led by single parents, be they male or female, is because adults can't get along in the same home. So there's no getting away from repairing the Black family if you want to repair the Black community. Children are going to be born. There is no evidence in human history that people are gonna stop making babies just because they don't like each other. People always find time <laughs> to have sex and reproduce. And we don't wanna have any more dysfunctional African people 
growing up amongst us because they're only going to work against the best interest of what we need to do to get ourselves right. So we have to fix the black male female relationship situation. And we also have to keep in mind that women are socialized to get married. And part of that is due to the biological clock of women. They cannot have babies into perpetuity. And so as a result of that, men have to also be socialized to get married in order for women to be able to give birth within the sanctity of marriage. Because if you don't socialize the men to get married to the women, men can have babies as long as they want. Although they shouldn't, they can. And so if you don't make marriage important to the young black man, the black woman never gets a chance to experience childbirth within the sanctity of marriage. So marriage is very important because it is the foundation of our community. I don't think we'll ever have functional fam black families unless both parties seek healing via therapy, whatever that looks like for them. Because I feel like two broken people, that's not that's not gonna work long term. Like it sounds nice. But I don't feel like it'll work long term. <clears throat> I agree with you. I agree with you. But I don't think everyone's broken, number one. Uh, but I do agree with you. Number two, again, no one's waiting, though, to build these relationships. So we have to begin the process of repair where we are and do the best that we can with the adults that exist. But our priority should be the children. My biggest disappointment with us is not all the dysfunctional adults that we have. That's not the problem. The problem is the children are going through that same dysfunctional process because they do not receive the benefit of our focus. If we focused on those under the age of 25, if we took everyone other 25, even if you took everyone under the age of five, and said every black baby five or younger from now until their 25th birthday are going to get this type of education, this type of socialization, this type of indoctrination, these types of trainings, these types of experiences. In 20 years, you have a whole new black community. In 20 years, you can fix this whole thing in one generation. But we don't prioritize the children. We would rather try to fix adults most of whom are almost irreparable. And I say that from a psychological standpoint because statistically, most people who go to therapy will not be helped. Only about 15% of people who seek psychological assistance will get better. And do you know why? Most of them are not motivated to change who they are. They go to That's therapy right. looking for a therapist to fix them Failing to understand the job of the therapist is only to help guide you through the process of healing yourself. So my focus, the reason we started with FDMG is as Frederick Douglass said, and this is one of the models of our school, he said, quote, it is better to raise strong children than to repair broken men. A lot of folks are usually set in their ways. People will say when they become adults, uh, but I believe it was one of your previous interviews you said that by the i can't believe i can't remember the, the specific age there's a certain age where the mannerisms that a child has picked up at a certain age will stick with them for the rest of their lives seven or eight it was around that range whatever mm -hmm. they pick up at that certain point is basically molded them to be what they're going to be for the most part are races that go to school looking for a husband versus 
our race, I would say, usually goes to, of course, since we're behind, in my opinion, behind the eight ball with everything that has transpired not too long ago. Folks tend to forget that this was not long ago, but we are behind. So we're trying to, you know, make up the ground, I would say. But there are some races that are going to school specifically looking for a husband. Uh, and like we mentioned earlier, there are a lot of unmarried black women out there. Uh, Dr. Umar, what, what would you say is a, a way that black women could potentially combat that? Because I'm serious, you do have athletes or black men in general that'll be in African-American studies and then there'll be uh, another race right beside them in the class wanting mm -hmm. to learn about African-American studies as well. <laughs> and then from there, another black man is with another race. The socialization <laughs> is different because so few black women will get married over their lifetime. Only about one in four black women will get married over the lifetime because mothers are aware of this. My daughter is not likely to get married. And if she does, there's a strong chance she will be married after her 30s. So black women are socialized to be so independent that the pursuit of marriage becomes a secondary thought to black women as it may be a primary thought to the women of other cultures. And so white girls, many of them will get married in college yeah. or right after they graduate from undergrad, they're married coming out. They're socialized that way. Black women, because of the absence of black men, it's not her fault. She's simply adapting to the reality in which she lives. So looking for a mate is no longer a priority because there's a strong chance I may never find one. And so she pursues her education at the expense of motherhood. And once she gets the education, she now feels that the men who are available to her are not her equal socially, financially, economically. That paralyzes her chances of getting married even further. So what am I saying? Number one, one of the reasons that white women are so good at getting top tier black men, in addition to the self-hate, because that's the primary reason. You don't even date outside your race if you love who you are. But putting that to the side, white women will find a black man with potential who's dead broke. He may have nothing at all. But she sees this man is an inventor. She sees this man is a scientist. She sees this man is totally committed to achieving. And I know if I ride him out, he will take me to the financial promised land. The white woman will find a black man in progress. The black woman tends to want him already at his destination. The white woman will see him through to millionaire status. The black woman tends to want the already finalized millionaire. And so this works against the black woman getting the type of man that she wants because you want him to meet you in his finished form. If you're waiting for him to finish achieving his goals before he asks for your hand in marriage, nine times out of 10, the woman of another race is going to take him before he even gets to you. I believe black women have to reconsider 
this notion that he has to have something to offer me at the beginning of the marriage. And I think she needs to look more at his potential to become what she would like him to be. All I right, think that's Umar. Of the business. <laughs> Go ahead. I, no, no, me. you hitting on it, man. You hitting on it. I already know what you're saying. I, 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 yeah. Because I have seen it. I've seen brothers. I've seen it. I've seen it too. I know exactly. Well, the yeah, woman took them, and the sisters never even looked at them. But okay, okay. So I hear what you're saying, but I have not seen that. I have oh seen. No, hold on. I have seen black women stick yeah. around for the potential that this man will become the man that he's saying he's going to be, and they do that for years and years and years. Nothing comes of it. They part ways and then he Are finally you speaking person is she waiting on him to become what she needs personally or is she waiting for him to become what she would like him to be professionally there's a difference and what i oh. mean by that okay because let me tell you what i see a lot of sisters will spend their best years playing around with men who they're sexually attracted to, but have absolutely no promise for them as a husband or as a father. The woman knows this, but she's attracted to him sexually. He's popular. He's swagalicious. She knows he's not husband material. She knows he's not father material, but I love the attention I'm getting from this handsome, attractive, popular man. Mm -hmm. When she gets too old to be of any use to men of that type, the swag daddies, she now goes out looking for a husband. At this point, you're 35 to 45, still gorgeous because black don't crack. But brothers... 35 to 45, especially in their 40s and 50s, when they come across a drop-dead gorgeous sister who hasn't been married, and in some cases haven't even had children, a lot of brothers tend to back off. They say something ain't right here because who you are and what you bring to the table, somebody should have been snatched you up. And most men tend to assume, and very often accurately so, that you wasted your tw your 20s and 30s playing the field instead of getting serious about building your family. Sisters tend to do exactly what brothers do in their 20s and 30s, and that is play around and enjoy themselves. The problem with that is men can make babies forever. Women cannot. And so I think in the socializing of our daughters, Black women have to pull back just a little, just a little on this independent woman phenomenon that our girls are being indoctrinated with because I think we're overdoing it to the point of radical black feminism. And I think it's working against black women's ability to find a suitable mate in their 20s and in their 30s. Let me give you this. I'm gonna give you personal. Mm -hmm. I was not one of the swag daddies in high school. I was a bookworm. I was the black activist. I was the nerd. I was attractive and girls appreciated that, but they were not all over me the way they were around some of these other brothers. 
Mm-hmm. But guess who I hear from now? Those same them. women who saw, they knew I was going to be something. They knew it. Mm-hmm. Okay? I was voted most likely to succeed in my class. They knew it. And I'm not just speaking of the girls in high school, even in my neighborhood. You understand? Because it was only but so many girls in high school. They saw it, but they, they chose the swag daddies. And me was a husband. And other brothers, there was a husband. But at the time, you wanted the swag daddy. And that's okay if you only want the swag daddy for a couple years. But no, you want to play with the swag daddies your whole 20s. And then you want to go into your 30s. And you want to play with the guy with the bends and the beamer and the this and the yeah. that. Nah, black women have to know when to call it quits. Get serious about building that family. Because what I'm seeing a lot of sisters do, and this is unfair. This is unfair to black men. I hear a lot of women in their 40s and 50s talking about they can't find no good men. Right? That's partially true. But you know what the other part is? It's partially true, but here's the other part. What were you doing in your 20s and 30s that stopped you from finding one then? Why do we have so many 40 and 50-year-old beautiful women with so much going for them, never been married? It's one thing to have tried it, and it didn't work. I'm saying you've never been married. You know why? Because you was out there playing that film, having your fun, and then you woke up one day and said, damn, I'll be 43 tomorrow. And I ain't never been proposed to, and I ain't never even thought about it. Now, all of a sudden, you're in a rush to get married. And because brothers are not jumping at the opportunity because they know there must be a story here, all of a sudden, we're not serious. Don't get me wrong. There's some truth to the narrative. But the other part of the narrative, Black women are waiting too long to get serious about building family. I, <laughs> we, we, I, I I know that we're just going to disagree on it because but, but, I, but, but give me that one piece, Queen. Uh, give me this one piece. What is your okay. opinion on my point that a oh, lot of point? black women, for reasons of career uh-huh. and reasons of wanting to date, no, no, yes, I agree. I do okay. agree with the point on the hyper independence and not focusing on finding a husband and having a family. I agree on that point. I feel like when it comes to millennials, I don't feel like millennial men are raised to be husbands or good partners. I agree. I agree. And but so, who's raising them, though? Their moms, I guess. So that dead. means what? There needs to be a conversation amongst Black women about the messages they're giving to their sons. Because guess what, Queen? As someone who works with Black boys on a regular Guess what they tell me? What? Dr. Umar, my father isn't the one who told me not to trust these itches. Yeah. My father ain't the one who told me women ain't ish. My mother is the one who told me not to trust them. My mother is the one who told me they ain't ish. Black women are training their sons not to value and respect black girls. I hear about it every day. But in in the same breath, black men who are fathers, who are not being emotionally available, who are not being consistent, are teaching their daughters that men are not going to show up for you. I agree. I agree. I I, I I agree. That's the issue. I'm not saying (laughs) 
I want to be clear. I'm not saying the mother is more responsible. Yeah. No, it's equal. Yes. Because I'm going to tell you this right now. I'm going to tell you this right now. More than the single black mother, mm-hmm. I'm blaming the professional black man. I want to be very clear about this. More than a single mother. There's nothing a single mother can do wrong in that house, raising the sons or the daughters, where I'm going to fault her more than a professional black man for abandoning the black community. If you notice, most black men of means, I don't care if you got a barbershop, I don't care Mm -hmm. if you got a restaurant, a car detail spot, lawyer, doctor, engineer, educator, principal, they do not live in the black community. They have moved out. They have abandoned black boys. Even if his father is not in the home, that should not be an automatic introduction to the school to prison pipeline. Even if the father is not in the home, that should not automatically follow that he has to end up a gang banger. The problem is we don't have enough men who stay in the black community to serve as role models to the young brothers who are still there. I don't blame the rappers. I don't blame the basketball players. I don't blame uh, the football players. I blame professional black men who have abandoned the black community for a life in the suburb, even if he has a white, excuse me, a black wife. Even if he has a black wife, you're still in the suburb, far out of reach of the black boys who need you. And I don't think enough responsibility has been laid at the feet of black men for abandoning our women, our daughters, and our sons in the black community for a much more comfortable life in a white neighborhood. I I mean, that's an internal battle I think I will eventually have to face as well. Because I I definitely understand what you're saying. If you want to build your community, then why leave it? Um, but at the same breath, it's like you want your kids to have the best. But unfortunately, sometimes the area where your people are may not be the best area for you or your family. I understand that. And as a mother, mm-hmm. I'm not going to fault you as a mother because mm-hmm. you're not the natural defender of the community. Mm-hmm. The black man is. It is our job to build it. It is our job to fix it. It is our job to defend it. So when a when a single mother says, I'm moving away, mm-hmm. I can't fault her because you should not be put in a position where you got to pick up the AK and defend your home. You understand me? Yeah. You are a nurturer, not a defender. The black man's job is to stay in there and make that community what it is. And the fact that we are so quick to cut and run, it bothers me to my soul because we are abandoning the very definition of what a black man is supposed to be. But here's what I would also say. With child sex trafficking and black woman sex trafficking Mm -hmm. being what it is, I would caution single black women about moving to the suburbs. You want to know why? Because if you're walking through the streets at night in a white suburb and a group of white men pull up to snatch your ass into that minivan, Mm -hmm. nobody white is coming to help you. But if a white minivan pull up in the hood 
and a group of black men hop out to snatch you, them corner boys selling that weed, they gonna run over there and get their sister out. Up. So although I understand there's pros and cons yeah. in both situations, yeah. when you look at the amount of black girls and women being snatched off these streets, yeah, I'm not hard. sure the suburb is the place for a single black woman with children. Food for thought. <laughs> so what do you what do you think would be the, the realistic small steps that like me or Justin can do? Um, I guess to just be a part of the movement is what I'll call it. One of the things we're gonna do at the Frederick Douglass Marcus Garvey Academy, let me say this. Aside from having a school, which I'm very happy about, I'm an educator, but you know what I'm even just as happy about? I don't want to say more, but as happy about is the fact that we have space where Black people can come and organize. Do you realize one of the reasons we're not a better organized people is we don't have places to go and organize? Think about it. Think about your neighborhood. And if you said, I want to bring black people together to talk about the problems we have in an open, honest, unapologetic way, where can you do that? The black church don't want that conversation. You are yeah. not coming into the black church to talk about <laughs> politics, racism. They don't want, where can you go? You can't do it at the NAACP. They're multicultural. You can't do it at the Urban League. Those white people are not going to leave so you can have a conversation. They want to sit right in your face. We don't have spaces where black people can come and organize. Where are our organizing centers? We don't have them. The community centers are public, so they're not under our control. Black people have almost no place they can go and organize politically. And so with FDMG, we will have a space where we can go and organize politically talk be there as long as we want nobody's telling you to leave nobody's charging you a rental fee nobody's turning the lights off and i'm just excited of the potential of ideas and solutions and implemented action steps that will come from it once we start meeting because although it's a school by day and it's a school during the week in the evening and on the weekend it's a black community organizing center we're going to have a Black Farmers Conference. We're going to have Black Women's Conference, Black Men's Conference, Ex-Offenders, Black Investors, Technology Conference, Black Media Conference, because one of our weaknesses, and we have a bunch, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. do you realize we don't have a system of communication as a race? If there's an emergency going on in Texas, how do we find out about Hurricane Katrina? Because Wolf Blitzer told us. Mm -hmm. Tom Brokaw told us there could be a group of black people right now being lynched in Arkansas. There's no way for you to know if white folks don't tell you. Even with all the social media we have, we have no high level clandestine method of covert communication one to the other. And that's dangerous. If we have to wait on white people to tell us what's going on with other black people, we're in a very poor state. And so I want to have a media conference, talk about and create this secret underground network chain of communication so Black people all over the country and then ultimately all over the world can share information without our enemies knowing about it.
Gotcha. Agreed. That would definitely be very beneficial because, like you said, who would know unless they tell us? Or even if you were to put it on social media, it would get lost in translation. Even if it were to pick up any traction, who's to say they wouldn't knock it down for yeah, it to be on hush hush? They would chat, yeah, they would shadow ban it or put it away until it's actually made an issue by the folks in that community. It, it's really, it's really disheartening, but it is the truth and it is the reality. So we have to be mindful and we have to make sure that we're doing our part to be proactive. Like Dr. Umar just said moments ago, we have to create our own. And, and I also want to say to your audience and you too as well, brother and sister, if there's any ideas you have about conferences and seminars that we need to have, feel free to text them to me, you know, oh, yeah. because uh, I want to consider everything. You know, we want FDMG to be that community that black people always wanted and never had. We want to be the next black Wall Street. That's what we want to be right there in Wilmington, Delaware, a predominantly black city. 20 minutes from Philadelphia, 10 minutes from New Jersey, 10 minutes from Maryland. And so one of the other things I'm very proud about is we'll be able to serve black boys in four states, you see. And that means we're going to have two buses coming to school every morning from each of those four states. There will be a Baltimore bus, a Maryland Eastern Shore bus, a Philadelphia bus, a Chester, Pennsylvania bus. There will be a Camden, New Jersey bus, a Trenton, New Jersey bus, a Dover, Delaware bus, and of course, a Wilmington, Delaware bus. So we will also be the only independent black school that can service four states as children. So it's going to be something, you know, you know, I just keep my prayers up to the most high, you know, because um, this has been quite a journey, you know, quite a journey. We had to go through a lot of sabotage from our own people, believe it or not. These Negroes called everybody on me from the IRS to the FBI, literally, literally the mayor of Pennsylvania, excuse me, the governor of Pennsylvania, the governor of Delaware. I mean, this was all black people, by the way, trying to sabotage everything we did. We had a GoFundMe back in 2015, 16, when we first started and they sabotaged the GoFundMe and had it shut down. They told them I was stealing the money and I had no intent of building a school. I mean, our people made this a much tougher road. You know, I spoke about the contractors, but I didn't speak about the detractors. You understand? Before we even yeah. got to the contractors, we had to deal with the detractors. And you know what's funny? I'm willing to bet you most of those detractors will be the first ones in line to try to come and participate in what we're going to do, you know, what we're going to be doing. And I forgive, I forgive, but I don't forget. If you were oh, willing yeah. to tear us down then, you'll try to tear us down now. So there's going to be a lot of people who are going to be unhappy when they find out that their name has been entered into the Book of Negroes. The Book of Negroes <laughs> is a book of people who ain't never bringing their asses inside that school. It's elders in that list. It's conscious people on that list. A whole bunch of YouTubers on that list. If you ever said anything against me or that school, you will not partake in any of the activities that are going to go on there. But we're going to have a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to creating a community atmosphere that the black community can thrive in. And I and I tell people all the time, you, you can talk about it all day until you're blue in the face, but until you start, you know, putting stuff in motion and making it happen like Dr. Umar is doing with this school, because it's happening. Everybody, when everybody hears the idea 
and they, mm, mm, I think, I guess, and all of a sudden, when you see the idea, it's a whole different ball game. <laughs> yes, sir. It's coming. Yes, sir. It's coming. It's coming. <laughs> it's coming. And I'm just happy that God blessed me to make that transition from educator to institution builder, because I think people started to see me in the same light that they see a lot of other conscious voices in. And that is, you know, he's giving out a lot of good information. He's saving a lot of children, you know, but he hasn't really changed anything that we can measure. You know, we can't measure how many kids he kept out of special ed. We can't measure how many parents he's helped save their kids. We need something tangible. And FDMG is that tangible because when I look at black consciousness, I can see a shift where a lot of people are dropping out of black consciousness because they're not seeing any fruit. It's starting to look like another religion to them. It's starting to look very much like the church that they left, you know, a whole bunch of talk, but really no action. So I'm just thankful that we were able to make this change and make it now in this decade which I think is going to be a decisive decade for the future of Black people in America. First and foremost, we appreciate you for coming on, Dr. Umar. Uh, All the information that was made available or he did state at the beginning of the episode, we will have below. Uh, We want you to donate. Please, please support. Uh, This is definitely a major movement that is happening right now, right in front of our very eyes. It's it's happening. It's not an idea anymore. It's there. It's here. No, I was just going to say, I definitely appreciate the conversation. You have definitely opened my mind on how I have viewed the term pro-Black, most definitely. I feel like I'm going to be reflecting on that (laughs) after this conversation. Also, um, share this conversation, because I feel like there are a lot of gems dropped, and that's why we have this podcast to begin with, right? To look beyond the surface, to find some understanding. So do that with the people around you. Um, we try to bring some substance for you guys. I have been Daisha Deep. And I've been Jay Stane. And remember to like, comment, and subscribe. Most <laughs> Every Friday, we will be uh, dropping an episode. We'll be dropping this episode as you guys will be watching it on Friday the 13th. And also, Dr. Umar, once more, we appreciate you coming on. Yes. Oh, yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And, uh, Real quickly for your listeners, where you guys based at? Uh, Charleston, South Carolina for me. Charleston, South Carolina. Okay, I don't have a Charleston date yet, but I will be having one soon. I'll be in Brooklyn on Thursday to celebrate Dr. Khaled Abdul-Muhammad's birthday. I'll be speaking to the youth in Atlantic City on uh, January the 18th, which I believe is next Wednesday. I'll be in uh, Baltimore the first day of Black History Month. I'll be doing a virtual seminar in D.C. the second day of Black History Month, Las Vegas on the 18th of February, Grambling University the 28th of February, Calumet City, Illinois the 22nd of March, Terre Haute, Indiana the 23rd of March, Memphis, Tennessee, April 3rd, Pittsburgh, April 8th, and then I'll be off to the Caribbean Islands, the island of Carousel in the Dutch Empire, April the 14th. No, certainly. And again, if anybody needs to reach me, 215-989-9858. Text me, don't call me. I don't answer the phone, but I will always respond to your text. 215-989-9858. Great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Well, certainly.